woman to his son, probably Rehoboam of all people. So these are those words, starting here, chapter 18, verse 6. A fool's lips walk into a fight, and his mouth invites a beating. (laughs) There's a whole sermon there. (laughs) A fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are a snare to his soul. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. Whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. The name of the Lord, the name of Yahweh, is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty. But humility comes before honor. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. And now we turn in our New Testament to 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. It is page 1016. As we continue our series through 1 Peter, and we get ready to launch into 2 Peter. The series is called Memories, Manners, and Mandates for God's Minority People. So we're just picking up right where we left off. I finished chapter 4 last week. Last week we're picking up here at chapter 5, 1 through 5. So, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is what I've read to you from the Old Testament and the New Testament is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O Lord Jesus, our chief shepherd, come and shepherd us that we may clothe ourselves in humility toward one another. Amen. You may be seated. The sermon notes are on the back of a worship guide there. There's only two points, so there's lots of space to write notes, and there's a quotation and a couple of scripture references for you. So, you know, as well as I do, that for some folks, leadership is all about bossing around and badgering. That's their whole idea of leadership. Bossing around and badgering. I remember when I first went in the Air Force, the old sergeant that I met when I was stationed at my first assignment, NORAD, North American Air Defense Command in Cheyenne Mountain, Colorado Springs. Yes, it's a big cave. Yes, there's a whole thing inside of it, and I was there. (laughs) But I didn't see Santa Claus, sorry, but he was there. But when I first went to NORAD, I met this sergeant. He was actually the senior enlisted guy of our squadron. He had been an Air Force Special Forces guy. Uh, pararescue is what it was at the time, and was badly wounded in Vietnam. And so he humbled, hobbled around on a cane. He was one of the few vets, one of the few guys that I saw in the military actually using a cane permanently. And so when he first met me, there's only a few things that I remember. I remember him always with a cane. He always had a pipe. This is back in the day when you could smoke in buildings, right? He had a pipe, and he smoked a pipe. It was the best smelling tobacco ever. 
Those are the two of those things I remember. The only other two things I remember about him are the two things he said to me the very first day I met him. He set me down and his good... Actually, he didn't sit me down. I stood at attention and prayed rest. He sat down. He said to me two things. I was a brand new young married airman. He said, Aaron Philibur, if the Air Force wanted you to have a wife, the Air Force would have issued you a wife. (laughs) That was a head-jolting shock. But then while he was explaining his expectations to me, he said, and Airman Philibur, do as I say, not as I do. I kid you not. Do as I say, not as I do. For some, my friends, leadership is all about bossing around and badgering. But the biblical view of leadership is clearly different, and it comes out in this passage. And so here, we're going to see what leadership is meant to be with pointed prescriptions, verses 1 through 4, but then it's going to move a little bit broader in verse 5 to, inclu- to be inclusive instructions. So pointed prescriptions, 1 through 4, inclusive instructions, verse 5. So the pointed prescriptions, verses 1 through 4, and I do hope you have your Bible open so you'll know what in the world I'm referring to. After all that Peter has described regarding our sharing in the sufferings of Christ, And God's judgment beginning at the household of God. That's what he talked about in chapter 4, 12 through through 19. Peter now once more focuses specifically on life inside the household of God. And so he begins with appointed prescriptions to the elders and the shepherds of the flock. Verse 1, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Think kind of like a flashlight. Here's the flashlight I bought at a hardware store. You know, the flashlight, this one, like the old mag lights, let me see if I can do it here, has a broader beam. I don't know if you can see the broader beam. And then it has a very narrow beam, right? So think about that for a minute. So the flashlight context in which Peter is going to be writing verses 1 through 5 is actually chapter 4, 12 through 19. And there, it's that... um, In that context, it's about judgment, God's judgment, beginning at the household of God. That's the flashlight context. And our need to entrust ourselves to a faithful creator while doing good. And so now, he's going to... Oops, it's blinking. Now he's going to narrow his beam. So there's the broad beam. Now he's narrowing his beam. Can you kids see the beam? No, I'm pointing at you. I want to blind you. Now there's the narrow beam. Oh, that way. I should just say it. Oh, oh, I see. Yes. Oh. Nellie, she's awesome. Yeah, so now like that narrow beam. He's going to focus on one specific group first. Inside the household. He narrows the beam maybe to answer the questions that would have arisen. Why is judgment beginning? Why is God's judgment beginning on the household of God? But more likely, he's answering the question, what can we do about God's judgment beginning at the household of God? And so the narrow beam is to first exhort the elders very pointedly. As Peter does this, he begins in verse 1 by stressing his credibility and speaking to the elders as a fellow elder. But he also reminds us of other things like a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed. 
the glory that is to be revealed, he saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw it again when Christ was resurrected and when Christ was ascended, and he knows that it's coming. So what Peter is doing there, he's talking about being an elder, but he's also giving his qualifications to be an apostle, a hand-picked spokesperson of Christ. His words are the words of Jesus. And the reason why Peter does this at the beginning, it's not meant to assert his authority in some heavy-handed way. He's emphasizing his sympathetic reliability to the elders. He understands and he knows of what he writes. Therefore, his pointed prescriptions are really one prescription with several aspects to it. The prescription is right there at the beginning of verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight. That is the prescription. Everything else Peter's going to say in this regard will simply be explaining what he means by shepherding the flock exercising oversight. Now that's the way it is in other passages as well. In 1 Timothy 3 verses 1 through 17 and Titus 1 6 through 9 that we began looking at this morning in Sunday school where all of the moral characteristics and qualifications that Paul lists for bishops and elders are really aspects of one major character quality, that he be above reproach. That's how both of those lists begin, that he be above reproach. And by that, here's what I mean. Boom, 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 boom. Peter's doing the same thing. But Peter's not focusing on character qualities per se, like morality. He's actually focusing on motivations and purpose. Motivations and purpose. Therefore, or first off, then notice that they're to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Notice that the license that elders have is only over the flock, only over the congregation where they have been elected and appointed, and no further. In fact, that's how he begins verse 1. To the elders among you. I'm writing to seven churches, so I'm writing to the elders among you. And so you, elders in that flock, exercise that oversight amongst the sheep of your flock. It's very simple, it seems. But the point is that there is no room for the loose canon elder approach that flaunts their ordination and flaunts their authority, drifting from church to church to church, demanding that all the other congregations submit to their authority. So, for example, I just cannot waltz into Redeemer Presbyterian Church in North Edmond. I cannot watch, waltz into City Pres downtown Oklahoma City. I can't go to St. Stephen's Independent Presbyterian Church. I can't go to Heritage Baptist Church. I can't go to Metropolitan Bible Church and just flaunt my authority. All you people need to listen to me. I'm ordained. Makes you feel like thunder's about to clap, right? I just can't do that. There are boundaries to our oversight. But I want you to notice also, it's the flock that is among you, which implies, and this is very unpopular, it's becoming unpopular in North America amongst the churches, but it's right here in Scripture. It implies that there is some type of membership so that the elders know who they're actually responsible for. The flock among you. I think that's very important. This is one reason why formal church membership is so significant. We have to know who it is we're actually 
called by God to shepherd. And the only way we would know is some form of church membership. There are lots of sheep running around from one pasture to the next. Well, I like this grass. Oh, but I don't like it anymore. I'm going to go over to that grass. And I just don't have any responsibility. We don't have any responsibility for them because they're not the flock that God has put amongst us. There's no accountability there. And that's usually why, normally why, people will not join churches as they don't want to be held accountable and shepherded. But there it is. It's right there in Scripture. There's some form of uh, some type of church membership for the elders to know who they're actually responsible for. So then to shepherd the flock, to rightly exercise oversight, Peter goes on to say, must not be by compulsion, but with willingness. It's right there in the middle of verse 2. Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Compulsion. Willingness. Hmm, that language should sound familiar. It is familiar. It's the language Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 when he's talking about financial generosity. God doesn't want us to give by compulsion. He wants us to give willingly. God loves a cheerful giver. He doesn't want us to give by compulsion. Oh, very intriguing. That eldering is a giving service and ministry. A lavish giving in response to the grace of Jesus Christ, just like our giving, which we did earlier today, is a response to the lavish grace of God. That's why Paul says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And then he goes on to say, and that's why God loves a cheerful giver. It's someone who's actually been grabbed by the gospel of Jesus. And it's the same thing with eldery. So we could call that then something like the giving eldership, (laughs) right? Giving themselves to being the shepherds who exercise oversight. Giving themselves to shepherd is an act of grace-filled gratitude. They give with the same thankfulness and readiness in their leading and guiding. Further. Paul, Peter goes on, he says further at the end of verse 2, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Notice that Peter is doing this, not that, but this. Here's what I mean about shepherding the flock among you, exercising oversight. Not that, but this. Not that, but this. Not that, but this. And here it is again. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. We're not to elder, we're not to elder or shepherd for what we can get out of it. You know what that is when you see someone leading for what they can get out of it. It's called the user's mentality. It's extremely manipulative. And so when Peter talks about the shameful gain, one of the aspects he means by that, shameful gain, can be financial. In fact, that's probably the first level of its meaning. The pecuniary, the money, not for going out and trying to hoard to themselves wealth. But it's far more than that. It's anything that fits inside of shameful gain. Like what? Like prestige. I want to be an elder so that way I'm honored by all. I want, I want to be known as that, right? Prestige. Shameful gain. Maybe that shameful gain also, actually it does include as well pride. I deserve to be an elder. So you just get along with it. That shameful gain also includes, at the least, power lust. I don't want to be submissive 
to the leadership I want to be over the church. Right? That's shameful game. And we can add to that sexual predation. People wanting to be in office for the purpose of using people sexually. That happens too. All of that is shameful gain. Shameful gain, not for shameful gain, not for money or megalomania and so forth, but to do so eagerly. The proper motivation is eagerness without thought of how it would add to our fame and our fortune. Next, the motive for shepherding and overseeing, and it starts in verse 3, is not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Not domineering over those in your charge. Notice that language. Again, it does imply church membership. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So if you're not a Presbyterian, you may not know what a book of church order is, but it's basically our procedural manual on how to do certain things in our church. And I appreciate how our book of church order beautifully points this out. At the very beginning in the preliminary principles where it says church power is, quote, only ministerial and declarative, into quotation. Church power is ministerial. It's about service. Leading from service, leading from the front, and declarative, proclaiming the gospel and the keys of the kingdom, etc. That was Paul's approach very often that he took. For example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1-3, through 3, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. It's what Paul told young pastor Titus to do. He says, as for you, in every respect, Show yourself to be a model of good works. Lead from the front. And that's the same thing here. And so, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples. The final motivation comes from our anticipation of Christ's return and longing. Verse 4, the longing to hear our Lord Jesus say, and here I'm quoting from Matthew 25. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. That's what Peter is talking about in verse 4. When the chief shepherd appears, he will receive, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And notice that Peter calls Jesus the chief shepherd. Who's the senior pastor of the church? That's right. It ain't Mike Philip. All the rest of the elders and the shepherds and pastors are just simply associate pastors or under shepherds. It's his church. He's the chief shepherd. And so, dear friends, to be appointed an elder in God's household is worthy and it is worthwhile, especially when you see that that eldering is an offering of thanksgiving for the goodness and grace of God and his abundant mercy that he's bestowed upon us. Now, I would encourage you parents, thinking about as application a little bit here, I would encourage you parents to start praying for your sons now. Maybe they're two years old, maybe they're 20 years old. 
Start praying for them. Pray that they would one day be qualified and motivated to serve Christ's church as pastors, elders, and deacons in this way. Well, why didn't you mention women? Well, I don't want to get into it right now, but every place in the New Testament that talks about this leadership uses the masculine and all the participles and all the verbs and all the pronouns. This leadership is meant to be masculine. There's all things we could say about that. But... Be praying for your sons. And that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be praying for your other children as they grow into adulthood to be faithful. We should always be doing that. If we're not, shame on us. We should be. But this passage is very pointed, and so my application is very pointed. But also, dear friends, pray. Pray for your elders. Pray that these traits would always, always, always be the case with all of us. Now... And in the many years and decades ahead at this church, that these would always be the traits that we would exhibit. And so one way to deal with God's judgment beginning at the household of God Peter is driving at is for shepherds to shepherd, exercising oversight in this way. Then from these pointed prescriptions, Peter now broadens out with my flashlight broadens out from the narrow beam and he starts to to broaden it out even more, okay? When you get down into verse 5 with inclusive instructions, verse 5. Peter's inclusive instructions begin by looking like, it looks like he's going to talk only about one age group, the younger folks. And yet he only gives the younger folks, so he mentions it specifically, he only gives it one sentence of instructions. He gives them one sentence of instructions before he moves on to include all of us. And so he begins, verse 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. When he's saying you who are younger, he's not just talking about young kids or teenagers, he is talking about young adults as well. You who are younger, be subject to the elders. Now why in the world would Peter momentarily focus on younger believers in the church? Well, he doesn't say... But I think that with a brief bit of a reflection, it's pretty easy to tell. I'll tell some stories of myself. I remember being a young Christian, young 20s. And I knew all the right things to do. All you had to do is ask me. (laughs) I knew the perfect way to raise kids. I'd read all the right books. All you had to do is ask me. And I was free with the advice. I knew with utmost certainty that my way of educating the kids was the right way, even the best way, and I knew what a church was supposed to look like because my brilliant expectations and explanations and my very limited experiences were very sharp and clear. And honestly, I was my elder's nightmare. I remember being called into session meetings on occasion. But my friends, it's been a problem in the church from even the early years. Clement of Rome wrote a letter. Clement from Rome wrote a letter to the Corinthians in 95 AD. He wrote a letter to the Corinthian church. Why? Because the younger members of Corinth had thrown the elders out because of some supposed inefficiencies. Wowzers. 
And for some of you, and I will date myself for sure here, and if you know what I'm talking about, don't nod your head so we won't get any accusations here, but in 1968, there was a B-rated LSD movie titled Wild in the Streets, and I remember watching it clearly. It was a cinematic promotion of a popular slogan that was running through the streets in the 60s, a slogan that may not be being used now, but is still in the drinking water to this day. The slogan was, no one under 30. Ah, somebody remembers the slogan. No one under 30. We're young, we're bright, we're energetic, we know better than all those old codgers. So vote them out and put them in the concentration camps. That was the movie. I'm sorry? Did I say what I say? Did I say under? No one over 30, sorry. No one over 30. Sorry, I just messed that illustration up. (laughs) And the list can go on. And so Peter's instruction is very fitting because of the frustrations younger believers may feel toward their slower, nuanced, thoughtful, older shepherds. This is not about all older people in the church. It's specifically in the context about being subject to your elders. And sometimes younger believers do feel frustrated by the slower, nuanced, thoughtful, older shepherds who are trying to think about and care for a whole congregation. And so it may feel feel like, well feel like, that their younger interests are neglected and when in reality there may be more pieces to the puzzle and there may be more working parts to the project than meets their perceptions. And the elders are trying to work considerately for the good of the whole fellowship. And so one other aspect of dealing with God's judgment beginning at the household of God, Peter says, is for younger believers to be subject to their elders. But then, Peter moves over to more inclusive instructions. It's the very end of verse 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now these inclusive instructions include all. The elders, verse 1 through 4. The youngins, the first part of verse 5. And all usins. The rest of verse 5. And notice it's clothe yourselves, all of you. Clothe yourselves. What interesting language. Clothing yourselves with humility is pretty much a picture of wholeness. It's a picture of top to bottomness. It's a picture of being all inness. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. To clothe yourself with humility is pretty... Um, is the opposite of dabbling in humility, sticking your pinky finger in just to see what the temperature is kind of thing. Clothing yourselves with humility is a full-time endeavor, a 24-7, 365 endeavor, especially, Peter says, toward one another. Humility is the opposite of pride and arrogance. All you have to do is just run through Proverbs and get your shins kicked. I mean, to see what pride is all about. And there's a couple of places, and you have some of these references in your sermon notes. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. Or one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. And you heard it also when we read from Proverbs chapter 18. Moving to the New Testament, and 
to James, for example. In James chapter 3, the very end of James chapter 3, he doesn't mention the word humility or humbleness at the, in that, in, at the end of chapter 3, but he defines, is actually defining humility as a product of God's heavenly wisdom that is given by grace to his people. The wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And then James will come around to specifically say, I'm talking about humility, because he will quote verse 5 here over in James 4. Therefore, he gives more grace. Therefore, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Ah, but more than that, humility is very much the description of our Lord Jesus. You heard it in the assurance of pardon when Jesus was talking. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am proud and arrogant. Is that what he said? Take my yoke upon you, me, upon you and learn from me, for I am uh, almighty, all-powerful, and can snuff you out in a heartbeat. Is that what he said? I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And Peter picks up that theme in chapter 2 of 1 Peter. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his stripes, by his wounds, you are healed. The humility of Christ. In just a minute, we're going to use Philippians 2 as our confession of faith. And it is the center of the gospel. Jesus, who was equal with the Father, did not consider it something to be flaunted about, but became fully human and humbled himself to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Humility is all really about Jesus. And Peter says, because we're united to Christ, that now is becoming by grace our family trait toward one another. Humility. And notice that Peter brings up humility here. Because it is specifically and especially humility toward one another. It has to do with us together inside the household of God. What can you do about judgment beginning at the household of God? Well, be humble towards one another, Peter's addressing. And so Christopher Hutchinson, a PCA pastor, clearly gets the point when he writes these words in this quotation, I hope is in your sermon notes. I thought I put them in there. Quote, God's grace in the gospel creates a gospel-wrought humility, which in turn leads to a gospel-driven unity. I highly recommend Chris Hutchinson's book. If you have a choice between purchasing and buying his, my book or his book, go buy his book and read it. Humility. God's grace in the gospel creates a gospel-wrought humility which in turn leads to a gospel-driven unity. So this is another aspect of how we will weather the storms of these fiery trials, chapter 4, verse 12, by being humble with one another. And here's, there's a warning promise that comes with this. 
It's at the end of verse 5. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, Peter is drawing from a Greek translation of Proverbs 3, verse 34, but he's also using it as a summary statement of so much that is in the Hebrew Scriptures. Like from the Psalms. God leads the humble in what is right. He teaches the humble His way. For though the Lord is high, He regards the lowly, but the haughty He knows from afar. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, which we read before our confession of sin, that's also part of this. He's just using this as a summary statement of all that the Scriptures have been saying over and over and over again about this. So that you can't miss it. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And we want to be, we want to be not those opposed by God, We want to be those who grow in the rich grace of God and God's ongoing grace that is lavished upon the humble. And as we walk this way, then this is one huge important way that we handle God's judgment beginning at the household of God. Now, in a sense, my sermon is all done. But I'm a preacher, so here you go. A little more. As we wrap up this passage and we tie a little bow on it, let me stay on humility just a bit longer. Humility, my friends, is not a spineless, self-loathing mindset. It is a recognition that I am a receiver. I've been given life, I've been given breath, I've been given hope, I've been given new life, despite what I really deserve. I'm a receiver. And it's a recognition that you and I are both receivers and we're all in this boat together and that you, just like me, surprise, surprise, are precious in God's eyes and that our Lord Jesus has taken both of us and has placed us on God's good side, justification, despite what any of us Deserve. It's recognizing that together, you and me. Pride, on the other hand, thinks life is a zero-sum game. If I give you anything, then I have less, and so I don't want to have less, so I ain't giving you nothing, right? It's that whole attitude. It strikes out, pushing others down. I'm going to get it mine. I'm going to get mine. Too bad for you. That attitude. Pride runs recklessly towards the idol of my own self-image, the shrine of my own self-perception and self-worship. And pride comes in a couple of different packages. Sometimes pride comes as full-blown braggadociousness, which is what most of us think of when we think of pride. But pride also comes with false, false humility, A false humility that thinks that actually I'm still pretty high and mighty myself or very important. Sometimes you hear it when Christians say things like, I can't take communion because I'm too sinful. What? I I just don't believe that God has forgiven me. 
Well, did he promise he would forgive you? Yeah, but I've really done bad. Oh, you're saying your sin is more powerful than God? That's pretty mm, proudful. Sometimes pride comes in the package of full-blown false humility. But genuine humility, my friends, gives. It gives forgiveness because it has been blessed and received forgiveness. Real humility shows grace to others because it has received grace that it didn't deserve. Real humility saddles up next to others to learn from them and to to learn from them because I don't have it all. Real humility saddles up to other brothers and sisters to love them and all of their discomfort and all of their despicableness because I'm an uncomfortable person to be around and I'm pretty despicable too. Humility looks like the Word who in the beginning was with God and was God and became flesh and dwelt among us. Humility becomes the seedbed. The seedbed, if you're into gardening, you'll appreciate that. The seedbed for harmony in our homes. But humility also becomes the seedbed for concord in a congregation. So Christopher Hutchinson again. God's grace in the gospel creates a gospel-wrought humility which in turn leads to a gospel-driven unity. And so, there's more to say about humility because Peter's not done with it as you look at verse 6 and 7, but we'll pick that up next week. And so memories, manners, and mandates for God's minority people. Let's pray. Lord God, do be with the elders of this church, the elders of our churches. We have visitors. Maybe they have elders there in their church there. We pray for all these elders. That we would all shepherd the flock that you have placed among us, exercising oversight, not out of compulsion, but with a generous willingness. Not for shameful gain, but with an eagerness. Not domineering, but being examples. I pray for those who are younger in our congregation, that they would not feel like they are being dissed in some way or discarded or pushed aside, but they would know they're loved and they would find, it, find themselves able to subject themselves to their elders and maybe we, we elders be worthy of such subjection. And I pray for each of us that we would clothe ourselves with humility toward one another. Because you, Lord Jesus, came in utmost humility for us and for our salvation. You did all that you did despite all that we deserve. And so may we respond in that same way with each other. That it may be a gospel display to a world around us that is being ripped apart this way and that. In Jesus' name, amen.